0: Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part two of Instrumental, where Alan and I will be curating side B of a mixtape featuring the melodies so good they don't need lyrics. Welcome back, Alan. Welcome back.
1: Ah. So we're going to do this again.
0: We're going to do this again. Some more instrumentals. Hopefully last week they enjoyed them, and uh, we have some good ones coming up.
1: Let's hope so. Um, Well, let's hope they enjoyed it last week. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope we also uh, have good ones as well. um, Yeah. If anyone's listening uh, this week, then that means we we gave them something they liked, I I suppose. Um, Yeah, like like I said last week, this is still a very foreign idea to me, just creating a mixtape of songs with no... No lyrics. It's not something I've ever done before. Well, I did it last week, so I guess I've done it before now. But uh, this week, my music is uh, it's a, it's a little less novelty. Uh, I'm looking at my, my choices here. Um, but still, it's uh, it's a good list. I'm looking at this, and I would listen to a majority of these songs on my own. Without question, so um, I can't say that that would be true necessarily of everything I brought to the table for side A yeah
0: so. I, I have a couple here that I may would probably not listen to, but uh, but most of them I would too. Um, to segue from last week, if you listened to last week, we ended the, um, the, the podcast talking about uh, pronunciations Oh yeah, okay, and uh, I told myself when I was t- when we were talking that I would um, you know this week make sure I could pronounce th- my first pick, and I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's an Egyptian word. So I mean it's it's it's, it's Egyptian, so I'm I'm going to I'm going to leave it to you to pronounce it correctly. D- okay. And my first pick is from 1962 and it's my surf rock pick. That's from Dick Dale. How do you pronounce it?
1: I've always said miserlu.
0: Miser, that's what I've always said. That's too. That's what I've
1: always said. I, that doesn't mean it's correct. That's just what I've always.
0: I mean, phonetically, it looks like miseru, so we're yes. going to go with miseru. Miserlu.
1: Yeah, um, it could be miserlu, I suppose. I, I, I really
0: miserlu. I don't know. It's Egyptian. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I know
1: that much. I, uh, yeah, I, I've always said miserlu, so we'll we'll go with it. <laughs>
0: I didn't want to have two surf rock. I mean, you said we could have had an entire episode of surf rock, but uh, I went with this one uh, for two reasons. Well, the Ventures "Won't Don't Run is a classic, um, but this one kind of hits pop culture in, in two ways. Um, yeah, it's 1962, so it's technically outside of the Gen X realm. But for those of you that are familiar with the song and you may not know the title of the song, it was the uh, title sequence for, uh, in my opinion, the greatest film of all time, and that is Pulp Fiction. Yes. And that is that surf rocks, you know, when the, when the yellow titles come up uh, at the beginning of the film, this is the song that you hear. Um, the, the name of the song actually translate, um, actually not only is it e- Egyptian, is, is the origin of the word, but it actually means Egyptian. Does it really? It does. Or, okay. or Egyptian, in some cases, Egyptian. It, it's a combination of Egyptian and Arabic, it's Mediterranean, um, and some actually um, translate to mean Egyptian woman. Huh. Um, although the original, I don't know why I went down the rabbit hole with this, but the word itself is genderless, but it's supposedly because of the Arabic also refers to uh, in the context of an Egyptian woman, the the melody actually comes. Um, it's it's an Eastern um, Mediterranean folk song. Um, more modern versions of this melody began to pop up in the 1920s, performed by musicians of that era internationally. But then Dick Dale got a hold of this and uh, and made it a rock tune, a surf rock tune specifically. Right. And um, Beach Boys did a cover. Yeah. Of, shortly after Dick Dale did his cover, and um, yeah, it was just one of those surf rock tunes that were so popular at the time. Time. But Tarantino, of course, has that great ability to take uh, you know cross-generational media and to put them in a different context that really just brings out a cool vibe.
1: Right. And this
0: really set the tone for Pulp Fiction, unlike I can't think of any other tune that he would use to really set the, the vibe of this song.
1: No. And or you this know, movie. He, Dick Dale's career, I mean, it took off. It, it, he was he he was more successful following Pulp Fiction than he was with the original release of the song back in the 60s um because Pulp Fiction was such a phenomenon that he he began touring you know and and actually uh began to make real money which was something that did not happen initially um so but yeah you're right Tarantino that man just has he's he's like a god i mean he he knows how to choose the music and he he uses it in such unconventional ways at times that it's just, it, it it makes the song come to life, sometimes for the first time, you know? And he's also very good at picking songs that uh, I think a majority of people may not be familiar with or, or at the very least have not heard and thought about in forever, you know? Um, just when I think back to Reservoir Dogs and Stephen Wright, you know, playing all of his 70s selections... I mean, some of what is played in Reservoir Dogs is so unique. I mean, it's not anything that I would ever associate as part of a, you know, it just.
0: Like I, Jerry Rafferty with yeah. the ear cutting scene. Yeah. With um, uh, uh, Clowns to the left of me and Junkers yeah. to the right. Stuck uh, in the middle with you?
1: Yeah, stuck in the middle with you. But, I mean, everything from, you know, Coconut uh, by Harry Nelson to uh, The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia by. Uh, yeah.
0: Oh. Coconut's the one song that on Yacht Rock I can't tolerate.
1: <laughs> I, yeah, well that song is just, it, it grates on my nerves. It, it always has. See, with the lime and the guy, it just, it never ends. That song just continues and continues. Um, but no, in fact, what was it? Was it, um, oh boy, was it Death Proof? Uh, was Death Proof Tarantino's or was that Rodriguez's?
0: Uh, well, I mean, they, they did the they, two films together. Right, they did them together. Uh, Planet X, I believe, was... Right, no, I'm not sure which.
1: Okay, because who was, who was I'm pretty who? sure Death Proof was Tarantino's. Cause okay. the soundtrack to that, I mean, Chick Habit, is just incredible. And then he has he has this version of uh, Stagger Lee yeah, that yeah. I had never heard before the movie. And it, it just, Tarantino does that to me every time. You know, it's just always such a, a, it's almost more of a thrill to see what music he selects than it is to watch the movie. Yeah, he pulls so,
0: out songs that of that era, I mean, we weren't. Um, necessarily introduced to because right. there were lesser known either hits or songs uh, from, from earlier eras and um, that's what's so exciting is to give them new life and put them in a different context.
1: You know, while you are saying that, yeah. I'm going to, because I I feel good about this, I feel like it's the one time I'm going to be correct.
0: That Rebel that rebel, rebel Rouser, Rouser is on I'm, the Pulp Fiction I'm soundtrack. Looking, I'm looking. Okay, because I can go over to my shelf right now and pull the CD right. off and show you.
1: Right. I don't think Tarantino's ever used it. Okay, so Pulp Fiction is Miserloo, Jungle Boogie, Let's Stay Together, Bustin' Surfboards, Lonesome Town, Son of a Preacher Man, Bullwinkle Part 2. You Never Can Tell, Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon If Love is a Red Dress, Comanche, Flowers on the Wall, Surf Rider. I am correct. Rebel Rouser is not on Pulp Fiction. But then I'm holding the soundtrack in my hands and I'm reminded once more what a genius Tarantino is in selecting his music.
0: It's on the Forrest Gump soundtrack. That's what it is.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on the
0: Forrest Gump soundtrack, which came out the same year as... Pulp Fiction. Yeah,
1: it was the same year.
0: Or at least a year off, so. Okay, Alan, I will say no, I was wrong. Yes. You were right. I've won the yes. last couple ones. You did. I was pretty confident, but in this case, I, I hand it to you. I'm, I I was wrong. I, I
1: just, last week I was too afraid to actually challenge you. Because <laughs> I've won the last <laughs> you, couple. You win every time I challenge you. And, All right, yes, it was on the time, Forrest Gump soundtrack. Okay, not Pulp Fiction. Okay, the only reason I felt really good about this one is because I have seen Pulp Fiction so many times time yeah, yeah yeah was yeah just...
0: no and i have two and and i yeah okay all right yeah all right, all right props to you
1: go me yeah <laughs> dwayne eddie you you just saved me from a multitude of shame um okay i'm done um, done yeah. okay <laughs> well we've certainly taken long enough on that one anyway um all right my number one um wow okay if you grew up listening to aor uh radio stations the album oriented rock uh, format of, of classic rock radio stations in the 70s and 80s into the 90s, then you remember what was played at midnight. Ah, yes. every Every night, I believe it was every night. It was certainly on the weekends.
0: Well, up in, I believe it was a Toledo station. I maybe mean, a lot of stations did this, but it, a lot of when we were in did. college, it was a Toledo station, I believe, at 1 a.m. And MMS made of vol- also.
1: MMS did it. I know NCX in Cleveland did okay, it. Okay, okay, um, so it was several. I, I think it was. I think it was just a very popular thing to do among AOR formatted stations, right, uh, right, across the country. But at midnight, you said it was 1 a.m. I thought it was 1 a.m. Okay, maybe it was.
0: I thought it was, but, but again, yeah, I was wrong about Rebel Rouser, well, so I'm not, not as confident.
1: <laughs> well, I, we're we're going back 30 plus years here, but nonetheless. It was a common uh, thing, at least here in Ohio, I can't speak outside of our state, but at uh, that late hour on AOR formatted radio stations, Funkadelic would come on and they would play in its entirety, Maggot Brain. Can't think of any guitar solo that that compares to this. I mean, it, I'm not talking about technique. I'm not saying this is the most no, impressive. It, it, it's
0: not. It's a mo. It's emotionally yeah it, it proficient.
1: Is, it is just the the most. Uh, I mean, it, and it goes through an, a, a whole tumult of, of emotional you know pool. Um, so I mean, well, let me give it give a little uh, background. Funkadelic leader George Clinton. Okay, and Clinton, of course, uh, there have been many different incarnations of his of his group. Uh, Parliament, Funkadelic, Parliament. We also saw Funkadelic. Parliament
0: Funkadelic yeah, yeah. at He's, the Rock Hall show.
1: Yep, they were there as well.
0: One of the members wearing a diaper.
1: <laughs> I remember that, yeah. Uh, but anyway, George Clinton, uh, what happened, first of all, he explains maggot brain as a state of mind. Transcending the body and enjoying the expansive freedoms of quote-unquote the funk. Okay, and achieving maggot brain according to Uh, George Clinton is uh, most readily accomplished with the help of narcotics, and no great surprise there, right? But the song itself, this song was recorded in one take, first of all, which is pretty damn impressive, uh, given the length and just given the emotional, um, you know, appeal of, of the song. Clinton surrounded Funkadelic guitarist Eddie Hazel with a massive amount of amps, Okay, so, and you get that feedback from, and the echo in, in this tune. I mean, it's so pervasive. He told Eddie to first, at the beginning of the song, to play like he had just heard that his mother had died. Okay? And then, about midway through the selection, he told Eddie Hazel to play like his mom was actually still alive. And that, folks, is why you have that roller coaster of emotional. Yeah. Um, you know, back and forth uh, in the, in the song. The result is just one of the best known funk guitar solos of all time, and it is like
0: it, an eight minute guitar solo. <laughs> yeah, and it, it is.
1: It's emotionally exhausting, but it's just I I get so lost in every every time that I I play this. I, I it can be middle of the day, you know, sun shining. I I put this on, and it just if you surrender yourself to this song, it just takes you into some really dark places. But then it it almost it almost helps you to find like a spiritual redemption, you know, on your way back out. And it it's just to me it's it doesn't get any better than Maggot Brain. Um, other musicians, interestingly, were playing on this track, but Clinton faded everybody out except Hazel's guitar. So you can get that slightest that that faintest hum of other music being played in the background, but the amps are so. There's so many amps and they're all turned up so high on on Hazel's guitar that, you know, it's it's it, it's almost subliminal. I
0: mean, you can hear you can hear the drum track, right. uh, And you can hear a little bit of bass in there, yeah. right?
1: But but it's so faint. Yeah, it, it's you know. Uh the only lyrics you, you might if you are a purist, you might argue that this has lyrics. However, I would say they are not lyrics, I would say it is a spoken word intro. Sure. Yeah. Is, is how I would describe it. Uh they are at the beginning of the song before Hazel's solo begins. Um But Guitar World, they ranked Hazel's solo at number twenty-one on its list of the greatest uh guitar solos of all time in 2015. I, I just, I love this number. And when we decided Instrumentals, this was the very first song that I just, I, I knew I would include. I was going to lead off with it, but then I thought, no, let's, let's save it for side B. I, I, I can't get enough. I, I've loved Maggot Brain since the very first time that I heard it, and it's it's one of those albums in my collection that just never gets old. So
0: Okay, I get to brag now. Okay. I've told you about some of my um, exploits at the Nelsonville Music Festival down in... Um, and at Athens. You're Athens. Is this
1: when you tell me you've met George Clinton?
0: I did not meet George Clinton. <laughs> okay. Like I met Kim Deal from the Breeders and Pixies. Anyway, um, this no, but they did play. They were the headliner one night, Funkadelic. Okay, and it was it was the headliner. It was the ten o'clock headliner. So it was it was pretty you know late for us old folks. And you know it's a festival atmosphere. We'd been out in the sun all day. You know there may have been some beverages consumed and they played and they were just wonderful, just great. And I did not expect them to play this. I just felt oh, like really? it was one they, of those that they wouldn't play. They played Mega Brain. And yes, and then um, it was one of those perfect June summer nights and everybody was just having a great time and they just went into Maggot Brain, and oh my gosh, 10 minutes of just pure bliss. I
1: hope, this, I hope the audience was silent.
0: Oh, we were, everybody was just glued into the vibe. I was gonna
1: say, I, if anyone is talking during this song in a live performance, I, oh.
0: No, you could've heard a, a pin drop in the crowd. You know, we were okay. all just standing, you know, it's it like I say, festival atmosphere, so everyone's just standing on the, the lawn area in front of the stage, and it was just, it was an experience. I remember at the time, just, remembering to be conscious in this moment and to just enjoy this because you know i don't know how often they play it they may play it a lot but um i didn't expect it
1: yeah that was, that's pretty incredible i would i would kill to hear this perform live so very cool
0: yeah yeah i mean and, and because nelsonville it's 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 a music festival but it's not the same size as like coachella uh or some of the bigger music festivals so i mean there may have been a a thousand of us there i mean it wasn't a huge wow so it's
1: really intimate yeah
0: yes festival it was very very intimate yeah nice the the year after the the headliner that night was um uh staples um mavis staples that was really good too so it was it's a really cool music fest for a couple years there they didn't have it because of covid um they're bringing it back this year but it's in a different location which is kind of disappointing to me because it was on the actual campus um, of um, of Nelsonville, there's a um, is it Nelsonville College, oh, Hocking, Hocking College, H- H- Hocking, Hocking Hills, yes, yeah, in that area, that area. Okay. And uh, it, the festival took place. Um, they took all sorts of these different historic buildings, like old like one room schoolhouses and log cabins, and they moved them to the campus. And they made kind of to preserve these old structures. They made kind of a village. And what's cool is in these villages, they open up these structures and they had, they sold used records and people were selling art. Uh, and then they had podcasts where they would interview the different performers the next day on the back like porch of these log cabins. was so cool. That was kind of a part of the, the cool atmosphere. Now it's in a different location because the campus is using it for something else. So it's a little disappointing. It's one of those things where, you know, we appreciate it when we had it, but we didn't realize it would be gone so quickly. Right. And they had some great, great acts. Flaming Lips played there. We had, uh, like I said, the Breeders played. Um, yeah, it was cool. It was very cool. Hmm. all right my turn your turn all right so my second track um and this is another one I, I forget what I bounced for this one I, I I was it was about a week ago and I was talking to my wife about this episode and she said oh there'd be a lot of really good movie um instrumentals and I, I hadn't really thought much about the movies and the first one came to mind I'm like oh, I have to put this on here because it's very, very Gen X and it was a huge hit. Um, It's funny. We talked about this movie when we did our movie tournament episode. Right? Yeah. I'm referring to St. Elmo's Fire and the love theme from St. Elmo's Fire by David Foster. Yes. They came out in 1985 from the St. Elmo's Fire soundtrack. One thing that really always bugged me about this song is the fact that it was called Love Theme from St. Elmo's Fire. (laughs) Now, we talked last week about how instrumentals can be maybe difficult to title because you don't you can't pull from from the lyrics but my goodness can you come up with something like maybe two of the characters names from the movie right because if you look at a lot of scores on soundtracks they're usually just titled like you had mentioned last week a theme from a particular character right or maybe a location in in the film this is just the very generic love theme from saint almost fire However, I did find in my research, and now we'll put this on our mentioned songs um, playlist, there is a version of this with lyrics.
1: There are lyrics to this song?
0: There is. And the name of that song is called For Just a Moment, love theme from St. Elmo's Fire.
1: I did not know there there was ever a recording with,
0: with There lyrics. is. There is a recording out there. And... Why didn't they just call the instrumental? Why didn't they call it for just a moment instrumental then instead of going with the generic? Because this was a hit song on Billboard and Casey Kasem had to say love theme from St. The Fire. Maybe it's because it, you know, helped promote the movie. I don't know. But that's just a little hang up.
1: Were the lyrics written later in in the Uh, the I I don't
0: think so, because I believe I believe this also appeared on the on the soundtrack. It was the follow-up single from the film, of course, John Parr's Man in Motion, um, which, what was the, that, Man in Motion was the subtitle. What was the name? Was Sam was Fire Santa the name? Fire, Again, yeah. so they're trying to promote the movie. Yeah,
1: Sam was Fire is the actual
0: track name, and then Man in Motion Which was. we talked about was, was not even written about the movie, right. it was about a guy who went around the world in a wheelchair to raise right. money. But anyway, so um, this, this one, um, I think that John Pars might have gone to number one, or went, it was a little more successful. But this one, for an instrumental track in 1985, went to number 15 on Billboard's Top 100. Um, the, the the only thing that bugs me about the song, I remember at the time, you know, I mean, we listened to pop music at the time, um, but it's it's David Foster. You know, I have a love hate relationship with David Foster. I respect the man. Um, I I kind of like hail him for the success that Chicago had in the eighties, and I also curse him for the success that he had with Chicago in the eighties because he kind of took Chicago from the the jazz influenced horn section band, you know, from from the seventies, and turned it into kind of a an adult contemporary band uh, in the 80s. And, you know, if you look up adult contemporary, t- adult contemporary in the dictionary, I dated myself, if you look it up online, you're going to see a picture of David Foster because he is Mr. Adult Contemporary. Um, very, very heavy synthesized um, you know, compositions. Um, he's a very talented composer. I'd love to hear his stuff just on the piano sometime. But... Um, it is so strikingly similar to another love theme for a movie that he uh, scored in, I believe it was 1987 or 88 stealing home, which isn't one that's as well known as St. Amos fire. I love stealing home. It's a baseball movie. It takes I place in the Jersey shore. Yeah, I love it. But the love theme from stealing home and the love theme for St. MLS fire, very difficult to tell them apart.
1: I am now. I, I love stealing home. It's been years since I've seen it. Um, Jodie Foster's... Jodie Foster and Mark Harmon. That's right. Okay. Um, It was a great movie. I I couldn't tell you the first thing about its soundtrack. It's been... It's been too long. I don't remember the soundtrack. well. The
0: soundtrack is basically David Foster so and a bunch of oldies scores. It, it's that. I mean, uh, Poison Ivy's on there. Okay, there's just just there are other oldies. Um, and, and but it's David Foster's score most of it. Gotcha. Yeah, and, okay. th- and this song is very much just kind of. It's like he took the St. Elmo's Fire theme and he changed a few <laughs> measures of it. It's really not that close, but it's very, 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 very similar.
1: Okay, I was going to say I, I remember nothing about its soundtrack,
0: and I prefer the Ceiling Home over the St. Elmo's Fire, but. When I hear the St. Elmo's Fire love theme, I, it, it reminds me of 1985. I yeah. mean, it, it takes me back to that time, so I had to include it.
1: I mean, you know, there are so many movie themes again that we could have used right. for this um, episode. I didn't, I didn't pull anything from from the movies, not really. Um, I. Probably the the quintessential is theme from a summer place, but that's that's so boomer, right? 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 right, That that, is the very definition of baby boomer. Um, As is love theme from Romeo and Juliet would be another example. Yes. Yes. But I'm I'm like you said last week, we could easily have done a John Williams mixtape. I mean that that would not have, you know been out of question I thought at one point about using Bill Conti is gonna fly now oh yeah but yeah, but was, then yeah. I thought is gonna fly they sing gonna fly now several times through the That's song true, yeah. and I'm like uh, is you know giving the title if, is giving the song's title words you know sung in harmony is that lyrics or is that and I, I decided just not to go there but um, yeah when you what did you bounce for this?
0: Uh, I, the Pink Floyd, um, one of these days. That's it. Okay. Which I love that, but it just didn't fit the mixtape as well.
1: Yeah, no, it was very well. One of these days was very, it's very minimalistic. Yes, you know, there's there's not a lot going on in the song. So, um, this one is definitely a much better fit for the the other music surrounding it. But, um, yeah, no, I I just. Again, I, I wasn't even thinking movies. I was thinking TV themes. I right, right. Well, I have another
0: movie week. one coming up, so... I know, yeah, I know we'll you do. will get to that.
1: I know you do. All right. Well, it's my turn, and here we go. This one, uh, this was another one that I knew right away I was going to include. It's, it's one of the very few tracks that I've included that was not released as a single. Um, because I'm looking through my list here, and I have so many top tens. I have so many number one hits on my on my list of songs This one was never released, uh, but if you are a fan of classic rock, you know this jam. It is Moby Dick by Led Zeppelin. Yes.
0: I just listened to this three times last night did you i did uh, I, I listened to the studio version and the live version from song remains the same and the yeah. 1972 uh, albert hall version
1: yeah I, it's just whew. john bonham what he does on this track I, first of all it's from 69 okay so this is this is early gen x technically 69 uh it's from led zeppelin 2 um this was john bonham's showcase song on early tours when they when they would, were touring very early in the band's history uh the rest of the band would go off and enjoy a smoke while he played this solo there was no guitar riff right when when performing it live uh his solo would last up to 20 minutes
0: um, i i well in some cases there are some versions that are over half an oh, hour yeah yeah. and um they actually the the version you see in song remains I mean, the same yeah is actually
1: shortened yeah it is um you're, you're correct on that.
0: I'm sorry, I'm stealing your thunder. No, no, no. I just, We're talking Zeppelin here, man. Right,
1: yeah. No, but the solo typically, typically lasted about 20 minutes. and, and the band, they would. They would leave the stage, they'd grab a smoke. Bonham, God knows what else. But, well, yeah. <laughs> well, I could probably make a few guesses on what else. Penny
0: Lane, anyway. Uh,
1: but anyway, Bonham, it was very common. He would actually draw blood. And his hands would be bloody stumps by the time he was done, because very famously, this track is played, a large part of it, not all of it, but a large part of it is played with his bare hands. Yep. He's beating on the drums. Now, the drum heads themselves, you're not going to hurt yourself there, but when you hit the rims yes, of the drums, as hard as he was playing, yeah, I mean, he, he would he would draw blood very often, um, especially on, on the toms. Um not so much on the snare, I don't think, but when he would hit the toms, yeah, the, the band would come back and he'd just have trails of blood going down his arms because he had played so hard. It's, it is an instrumental song. Uh, and according to Bonham's wife, Pat, the song is named Moby Dick because I always wondered, you you, you talked about Jessica Yeah, last right, week. right, right. The song is called Moby Dick because his son always asked him to play the long song. Okay, quote unquote, the long song. And when John asked uh, Jason jason bottom mm-hmm. when john would ask jason why jason would answer because it's big like moby hmm. that is where moby dick the title for this track comes interesting from. because all my life i wondered that because this song as much as i love it it i don't see i i don't see herman Mel- melville anywhere in no, this track but it's instrumental
0: know. so you can do whatever it, ex- you want
1: exactly but yeah no it, it's because jason used to call it uh the moby song he used to call it the, the long song and he would call it the moby song um, it evolved out of a drum solo that bottom originally played that he called pat's delight which was named after his wife jimmy page would often catch bottom jamming in the studio and he recorded parts of it and pieced it all together and that was that was where this particular version for the the album comes from but yeah the name of bottom's drum solo was later changed to over the top for the 1977 tour and it was—it uh, used to be called uh, "Out on the Titles," or I'm sorry, "Out on the Tiles," not titles. "Out on the Tiles" riff as an intro instead. But um, yeah, it's just—it is one of the great drum solos. There's not—there's nothing particularly um, unusual, flashy. There's—there's there's nothing. Out of the ordinary about No, this I
0: disagree. Solo. There are times when he's playing so fast, and, and, and I can't decide if it's an. I don't think it's an effect that they added because no, no. it's in every version I've heard. He is playing so fast that there is um almost I don't know how to describe it like a like a, a whooshing spectrum, a sound spectrum that follows along when he's playing. I can see that, that. makes this noise. It's like I, it's just it's yeah. so incredibly fast.
1: Yeah, his thirty-second notes. I mean, they they do, and especially with bare hands. That's that's what, that's where it gets really. Impro- I, with drumsticks, you have the bounce of the stick. But when you play with your bare hands, it's you know it, it's a it's an entirely different uh, style of playing. Um, so yeah, I, I I could agree with that. But my point was that he's not doing anything that is different from what other drummers do. You know, I mean, just the conventions of it. Um, but what he does and how he does it is just so. Uh, You get lost in this man's drum solo. I mean, it just, it goes on and it goes on. And he plays... That's what
0: cocaine will do for you, folks. Yeah, that's true.
1: (laughs) But I mean, he also changes time signatures and he, I mean, he slows down. He he speeds, I mean, it's just, I love it. And
0: when did he get his smoke break? That's what I want to know. The drummer, that always happens. The drummer does the extended solo. Everyone else gets to go back and and relax a little bit.
1: It really does. And the
0: drummer, who's arguably doing the most physical work of anybody in the band, doesn't get a break. Unless there's an acoustic set, someone comes out with a guitar and maybe they get a break.
1: So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but even on an acoustic set, it's not uncommon to have no true. drums. Yeah. I um, but uh, no, you're right. The drummer does get kind of he gets stiffed on that in that respect, I, I suppose. But uh, now there you go. Moby Dick had to include it. Oh yeah,
0: definitely, definitely. All right, good. All right. Well, I'm going to choose a song that um, was originally a Jimi Hendrix classic, and uh, I could have. Well, I mean, the Jimi Hendrix one, you know, I, well, let's, let me put it this way. Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yeah. Uh, I I think we've used him one time. Um, we used uh, for the rock and roll episode. Twice. Oh, yeah.
1: Uh, House is Rockin' for rock and roll. And then I also used Mary Had a Little Lamb when we did our animals. Oh, that's right. Yes yes, 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 Yeah.
0: Um, Stevie Ray makes this, this instrumental version, just his own. Like, we talk about that all the time, taking covers and making your own. This one is incredible. I, I like Stevie Ray. I'm not as much of a fan as other people that I know, but I, but I do like his stuff. And of course, he, he was taken from us way too soon um, in the helicopter accident. He was in a 91. Um, this version he does of Little. By the way, the song is Little Wing. not have really thought much about the song because he did not include it on any of, uh, of his records. It wasn't until he passed away mm-hmm. and they released The Sky is Crying. Right. Uh, it Which was, is
1: an incredible collection, yes, by the way. Yes,
0: yes. It, it is included on in that collection. So it technically was recorded in 84. It was released in 91 um, from The Sky is Crying. And it won the Grammy in 1993 for Best Rock Instrumental Performance. Um, it just he strips the song down to its essentials. He expands it then to new heights um, in, in his, in only the way that Stevie Ray can do. Uh, I mean, he, he is, he has a talent. I mean, when you, the word genius gets thrown around a lot. Right. Um, and what is, does, what does genius mean? I mean, is genius obviously correlates with intelligence, uh, creativity, but I think it also correlates with a, a kind of talent yeah. that you're just born with. Not to say that he didn't work his butt off. Obviously, he did. But there's an element to, to his playing that I don't care how much you practice, the average ordinary man or woman is never going to be able to match what Stevie Ray Vaughan could do.
1: Well, and it's all about the feels, you know. Yes. And and Stevie Ray, I, I I love Stevie Ray Vaughan. I love blues. I mean, I'm this summer I'm taking a, a trip down the blues highway, and Stevie Ray, you know, is going to be playing on my my. My uh, mixtape, as I as I do, I I just I love this guy, and yeah, he had just there's it's almost like he would step into the music he was playing, you know, the music would would consume him. He wasn't playing it; the music was actually playing him. If if that makes any sense, yes. Um, and it, it's very unlike most blues music. I mean, most blues musicians are just, you know, it's it's about the, the that driving. Beat. It's it's about the the guitar lick, but with Stevie Ray Vaughan, it was just an emotional, you know, ride from start to finish. He well, he had a he was in tune yes. to the music in ways that even a Hendrix never never was, never could be. Well,
0: here's what you have, you mentioned um, how Maggot Brain is a very emotional playing. Okay. Yes. So you have, you have emotional and you have technique. So uh, a lot of the jazz musicians that appeared on Steely Dan records, for instance, right? Yeah. They were technically so proficient and, and genius, okay? Maybe not as emotional, right? Steely Dan has been known to be a little bit sterile, right? Very, But <laughs> yeah. then you have very emotional guitarists, like, like my favorite guitarist of all time is Neil Young. Um, technically, you know, not that difficult, but the emotion that he's able to pull out of, of his playing is just off the charts. What you had with Stevie Ray was both. You have a technique, uh, and and just a level of of just. I don't know, it's hard to even describe. We always sit there and we talk about music instead of listening to music. Right. But he had the technique down, and he had the emotion down, and that's what made him so great.
1: Yeah, and, and there, you know, he has very few peers that have been able to pull it off. And even those that have, it's not a consistent thing. Stevie Ray Vaughan, it was every track, every time. Right. Um, like Hendrix. I mean, one listen to the Star Spangled Banner. I mean, that that is so sure. emotionally heavy, and you know you, you listen to, I mean, Clapton has his moments, Mark Knopfler has his moments. Of course, you have the great guitar gods. You know, I'm not going to list them all, but Stevie Ray Vaughan, he wasn't. Here's here's the thing about Stevie Ray Vaughan that I think always just really made him such a giant in my mind. He wasn't trying to impress anybody. Oh no, huh? You know, huh. a lot of these other guitarists, yeah, they are, they are. They're they're legendary. They're gods, you know, of the instrument and of their craft. But you know that they're out there and they're trying to really just show off sure. a lot of the time. Stevie Ray Vaughan was not—that he, he that was not a part of his repertoire. He could care less. He he, he would, was doing it for himself. Yeah, he played it for himself because he loved playing the instrument. And it shows. You know, it absolutely shows. So, yeah, no, it's a great cover. It's just—it yeah, it doesn't get any better than Stevie Ray. So, very, very happy you included it. All right. You're, you're up. All right. Well, my next pick, um, this one is a, a jazz, it's a jazz tune, make no mistake. It actually hit number nine. It was a top 10 hit in 1993. We actually had a jazz number as a top 10 hit in 93. It was by Us Three, and the name of the song is Cantaloupe, and in parenthesis, Flip Fantasia. <laughs>
0: And all I can hear is that bank commercial that uses this song now. Yeah. I what, maybe it's not even a bank commercial, but recently. A commercial has featured it pretty it, heavily. It, yeah, it has, and I
1: can't think of what. I hate commercial when commercials
0: else. ruin classic yeah. songs.
1: Um, yeah, I can't even think of what brand it's it's for, but I, I know what you're talking about. Now, this song actually there there is a version that was recorded with lyrics, and then there's a version that was recorded without.
0: I, I can't imagine lyrics to this song.
1: Oh, you you don't remember the bitty bitty bop in the? I don't the flip fanta Oh yeah, there 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 is a version with lyrics. I of course went with the instrumental track, um, which the instrumental is the. You know, that that was the original. Um, But the song, it actually is a cover. It covers Herbie Hancock's Cantaloupe Island, or Cantaloupe Island, uh, I suppose. Um, But like Hancock's original, Cantaloupe was released on the influential jazz label Blue Note Records. And the single, it was us three's very first one that was certified gold in the USA. The album, uh, Hand on the Torch, from which the song comes was Blue Note's first platinum album. This song was huge in the 90s. And, and the spoken opening lines, uh, the, the song is introduced, uh, both versions. Ladies and gentlemen, as you know, we have something special down here at Birdland this evening, a recording for Blue Note Records is how it's introduced. Uh, it's actually a reference from the famous Birdland Jazz Club in New York City. And the line that those words uh, the, the actual recording it's taken from Pee Wee Marquette's opening announcement from Art Blakey's first Birdland album A Night at Birdland Volume 1 which was from 1954 um, so if you're a jazz fan there you go some, some trivia for you but it, it is just uh, I, I love this track I mean the, what they do and just uh, uh, it, it's just it is it's one for the ages I, I never get tired of this so
0: yeah, great tune. Yeah, and the Herbie Hancock stuff. Um I love I have been going back and listening to a lot of his earlier stuff. Watermelon Man, have you listened to that? Oh, yeah, yeah. So 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 good.
1: You know, if great. you if you really want some fun, well, I wouldn't say fun. If you want something very moving, let me put it that way. From Herbie Hancock, you want to check out The Joni Letters. Okay. Uh it was an album that came out not too long ago where he basically does it's an entire album of covers of Joni Mitchell songs. Ooh, interesting. Uh, but, but what he does with them, I mean, he makes them his own. I mean, completely uh, his own. And it's just, I it was hailed by, I'm pretty sure it won the Grammy for Jazz Album of the Year. Um, But it, it's, that was the last album by uh, Hancock that really just blew me away. And it's, I want to say it's probably five or six years old Is now. he
0: still living or did he pass? Oh, no, he's still. Is he? Okay. Yeah, he's, okay. he's
1: so far as I know, he's alive. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I can look it up. Well, I just
0: haven't heard much from him.
1: Well, yeah, I well, I, we're not, you know.
0: I know. No, I know. Being outside the not jazz. everybody can be Tony Bennett.
1: Oh no, no, guy, <laughs> that man is everywhere still.
0: How old is he now? Like, is he uh, in his nineties?
1: He's got to be close. Yeah. I, he he has Parkinson's that he has. Yeah, I believe so. Um, I know he's he's done touring now. Unfortunately, I never got to see him live. But uh, yeah, Tony Bennett, he um. Uh, he was omnipresent. And he's multi generational yes. in ways that other jazz musicians never are. So, yeah. your turn.
0: All right. Well, this is my second movie tune. Um, and this is Axel F by Harold Faltermeyer. Came out in 1984, of course, from the Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack. I remember seeing, and I'll have to ask you this. Um, I, I discuss this with some people once in a while um, for uh, an odd reason. <laughs> Is it just me, or does everybody remember what theater they were in for all the iconic movies in the eighties and nineties?
1: I remember which theater for most of the movies that I saw, Um, but I, you know, I think that was in part because, at least for us, I can't speak for other for our, our listeners. You know, I don't know what what their circumstances were, but each of our movie theaters in this area was very. Unique, yeah, and there was no multiplex,
0: correct? You know, they had all that character,
1: yeah. I mean, it was very character-driven. I mean, hell, some of them still had balconies, right? I don't remember ever sitting in the McKinley Theater's balcony, but it had one. McKinley
0: you know? Theater, we had the Gold Circle Cinema,
1: Gold Circle Belton Village Twin Cinemas. The park, I loved the, the park,
0: park. Was like a castle. Walk, yeah,
1: walking into the castle was always a thrill. Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, I think it's just we've lost that. I, yeah. Going to the movies is not a magical experience anymore. Right. It, it's so. I, I don't know. It, it's just, it's very consumer driven. It's it's just, it, it's very sterile. Yeah. You, you walk in and you just, everything all is-
0: the, All the theaters look the same. They and, do, you know. yeah. And they, I think our Malat the Mall, the Canton Center was the very first kind of multiplex we got before Tinseltown. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, the Canton Center, the, yeah, yeah, it was- They always had that gummy bear intro before the movie began. I hadn't thought about that in years.
0: Anyway, that was just an aside. I remember seeing Beverly Hills Cop in the theater for the first time, and I I do remember recalling this synthesized theme that kept playing. And typically, you don't want the score to overpower the action. I heard one director say that you don't want to know that the score is there. It's there, but it it shouldn't be overpowering the message. Uh, but in this case, it fit, and I remember kind of it was kind of catchy. And then when I bought the Beverly Hills Cop, uh, cop soundtrack, because it had a lot of popular singles, um, there was Axel F. song went to number three on Billboard yeah it's a very very simple uh, keyboard riff there isn't a lot to it
1: yeah no there's there's not much to this song at all but it's it's it, it's just very catchy you know right. it, it, once you it's, it's near worm once you get it in your head you don't you don't lose it. Okay, so what theater did you did you see it in? That was in the McKinley Theater. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I, I my memory was McKinley,
0: but yep, I, uh, yep, yep. You yep. said
1: that, and then I'm thinking, well, is my memory, is my memory <laughs> okay. failing me? I, I also I,
0: saw Ghostbusters there and Rocky Four. I could just I can name oh, yeah. all the movies I've seen in all the oh, different. so many.
1: Yeah. At the
0: park, it was Indiana Jones and and uh, what uh, uh, James Bond. I mean, I can just go through all these films. Yeah. Uh, Millette Mall Cinemas, where I saw Empire Strikes Back. I remember waiting in line oh, to see yeah. that.
1: Um, they had all three Star Wars films, actually. I remember Return of the well, Jedi at Millette Mall.
0: That was there, too. But I saw it at the Belden Village Twin Cinema. I remember my parents said, we have a surprise for you. Um, and they drove me there. And I still remember. It's one of my earliest memories. So it would have been, what, 77? I remember getting out of the car and seeing a cardboard cutout of R2-D2 and C-3PO and I knew they were bringing me to see Star Wars because I had a couple of the action figures and I'd seen the trailers on TV. Star Wars was at the building? That's where I saw okay. it. It may have been in multiple places. but Yeah, well, no. I saw E.T. there. Yeah. I, it just
1: I, I I don't know. I remember Empire in, in general. But that I'm was very... definitely
0: uh, yeah, Millet. Yeah, I remember yeah. those
1: very clearly. Empire, my mom, it was, she never did this. She actually let me miss school. She oh, I wow. took the day off school to go see Empire. Because the lines were so crazy on the weekends and at night that she actually let me skip school and took me to a matinee on a school day for it.
0: It's the first time I remember a a, a concept of a spoiler because um, somebody I talked to, I didn't didn't see it right away, and um, it was an adult, I don't know who it was, a a friend of of my parents maybe, uh, and they were like, oh, we're not gonna tell you about the end. I'm like, oh, there's something at the end, there's gonna be a twist, you know, there's a
1: spoiler. oh Yeah, so good. And then Return of the Jedi. I remember my dad is the most impatient man in the world. He has no patience at all. But I remember we got in line for Return of the Jedi at like nine in the morning, opening weekend, and we didn't we didn't get in until like the last matinee. So we finally took our seats probably, I want to say, right around maybe four thirty, five o'clock. My dad actually stood in line the entire day. And this line went through the mall and out of the mall and back into the mall. Yeah,
0: folks, that's why they called it blockbuster in the day. Blockbusters, because they literally. If you had a a movie theater, like say in downtown, uh, ours were more suburban, but people would wrap around the block and they would wait for hours and hours. You didn't have these multiplexes where you would play the same movie in several different theaters four or five different times a night. So yeah, that's where that term for you youngins out there, blockbuster comes from. Yeah, you had to wait.
1: Yeah, it's one of my best memories of my dad because the man has no patience at all, but he stood, he
0: waited
1: waited in that line for me because I don't think he really, Cared. I, he, I don't think he disliked Star Wars, but I mean, I was, you know, at that point in my life, I, I lived, breathed, and died Star Wars. So, yeah, he stood in that line for, I had to have been like six or seven hours to, to actually take me to see it opening weekend. So
0: And that one got spoiled for me, too, because a, a friend of mine, his dad worked for a, a local press, and they pressed the comic book for Return of the Jedi. Oh, no. And so he got an early copy of it and brought it to school. And I remember looking, I remember opening it up and seeing the panel where the Rancor, it was like a full-page panel of the Rancor, and, and then I couldn't help myself. I read the entire thing cover yeah. to cover. So I already had the entire movie spoiled for me before I actually went and saw it. I
1: already knew that she kissed her brother. Yes. Yeah. Okay. No,
0: that, no, Return of the Jedi is the one I had spoiled for me. Right. She kisses her brother in Empire. Well, no, Empire. no, but,
1: but that's when you find out she oh, kissed her brother. Oh, gotcha, yes. Yeah, no, no, no. Gotcha. I know, I know yeah, she yeah, kisses yeah. him yeah, in right, Empire, right, but right. you didn't know that that was <laughs> correct. so taboo at the time. Correct, correct.
0: Uh, the song was also included on, on Meyer's solo record as a bonus track. He did not want it on his record, uh, but the record company insisted because of the popularity of the track. All right. Very cool. That's
1: Axel. <clears throat> okay, well, I'm looking at this, and I guess I did include... a a movie uh, theme. But I did not intentionally include a movie theme. Uh, My next track is by Quincy Jones. It's from 1962 from the album Big Band Bossa Nova. This is soul Bossa Nova. Bossa Nova music, folks, was trending in the early 60s. I mean, every artist uh, seemed to blend the style uh, with with their chosen genres. Ella Fitzgerald had Stardust Bossa Nova. Lou Monti did Bossa Nova Italiano, um, and that, so many of them. Quincy Jones did an entire album, and the album, Big Band Bossa Nova, the first track was this one, Soul Bossa Nova, which, despite the title, is more of a mashup of classical music than it is soul, frankly. Um, it is just, it's one of those songs that has never gone away. In fact, Quincy Jones actually said in an interview in 2010 with Billboard that he wrote it in 62 in 20 minutes for the big band Bossa Nova album right after he left Brazil with Dizzy Gillespie when the Bossa Nova first you know, started, when it began trending. And he said, the damn song won't go away. Well, that's in part because it is now best known as the theme song for the Austin Powers Yes,
0: movie. yes, yes,
1: yes. <laughs> Which uh, star Mike Myers, of course, uh, you know, being the spy from the 60s who is cryogenically frozen and then returns to battle Dr. Evil. Um,
0: well, if it's a perfect song to match his crushed velvet suit. It really That's is. That's the way yeah. I describe it. It
1: is. And, you know, I wasn't... I, I Obviously, I know it's the Austin Powers theme song, but I wasn't even thinking Austin Powers when I included it. I was just thinking, you know. But then you were talking about movies and I earlier said I didn't include any. Well, no, I, I guess I did. International Man of Mystery, The Spy Who Shagged Me, Gold Member, it's in all three. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just, to me, it's just a fun, quirky number, you know. Um, what, he, what he does here, it's just, there's there's so many different sounds at play and how they kind of...
0: From the flutes. and oh, the, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just... It's just it's perfect, it was perfect for Austin Powers. It's really, one of those yeah. perfect songs, kind of like Tarantino, taking this song from a former generation, and pulling it into a Gen X vehicle, it works perfectly. It really
1: does. And and you know, it's funny, because we so we could do an entire mixtape of, of movie themes, we easily, easily could have used the, the iconic orchestral theme for 007 by John Barry. Yeah. In fact, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm wondering why the hell I didn't use the All orchestral right. theme to, to James Bond. But yeah, I mean, it just, uh, I love this number, and yeah, it is Austin Powers, didn't even, wasn't even thinking in those terms necessarily but
0: But like like miserably it works on two different levels so perfect
1: yep absolutely your turn
0: all right well this is one that uh i think we might have kicked around for a halloween episode or two um but uh, it's frankenstein by the edgar winter group So the original track was much longer, and in, in almost a jazz sort of way, I guess in a rock way too, um, different, you know, the musicians, especially guitar players, would kind of go off on these side jams. And it kind of turned into this monster of a track that didn't always have a through line. It kind of went off on these different tangents and alleys, and it didn't really work that way. And so what Edgar Winter had to do was kind of go through and cut and lift and put together, splice together this this new monster, if you will, uh, of a song. And that's why they ended up um, settling on Frankenstein. Also, it refers to the, the, the beat. They felt it was kind of a heavy, monstrous beat or the rhythm as well. Um but um, since it was instrumental, the band intended to leave it off the album they they didn 't want to include it like like we said. a lot of people don 't really like instrumental music, especially not as a single, but they added it at the last minute and Boy, have we talked about this many times on the show, they issued it as as a b side to their single. But the disc jockeys back when disc jockeys could actually choose what music they were going to play in the air, they preferred the b side Frankenstein, and they began to play it, and it became a huge radio hit. And then the, the single started to sell for Frankenstein. Huh. Yeah. Um, the hard rock progressive hit, I guess you can describe it, uh, was later reworked with more synthesizer in 1983. Now, I don't remember this, but I went back and looked it up on YouTube. So it's true. It's there. It exists. Um, they actually made a video for the song with uh, Winter dressed as Dr. Frankenstein. And it was placed in early MTV rotation in 1983. Of course, we talked about how MTV in the early days would take anything because they just needed content. And a lot of bands weren't making videos at the time. So they were going to take anything, even a 10-year-old song (laughs) that was remade for the MTV generation. Hmm. Yeah. But this is a cool, this is a, another cool epic kind of jam song that just kind of, like I said, it's very progressive. It goes in all sorts of, I can't imagine what the original track would have sounded like because yeah. this one's all over the place too, but in a good way.
1: Well, this one at least feels like it's one comprehensive whole. Right. You know, I I don't know that I would say there's a through line, but it certainly weaves in and out. Um, right. So yeah, I, what you're describing, I can't imagine what a behemoth and what an unyieldy right. you know, mess that would have been. Probably would have been a beautiful mess, but I, I still, yeah, it's a great number. Okay, well, my next one, I, I'll tell you, this number 11 spot, I, I kept changing. I've never been so indecisive about an episode because I, I had so many songs going in and out of this number 11 spot. Um, Oh, I'll put some of them on the mentioned songs uh, list, but I'm not going to name them all. What I ended up choosing in the end was A Taste of Honey by Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass.
0: one of the songs the Beatles covered on their early albums. Yes, we talked we about that during the Beatles episode.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's um, uh, Please, please me, Taste of Honey. Um, everybody has covered this number. Yeah. Actually. And, and I gotta
0: be honest with you, Alan, I, I'm not much into Herb Albert and I never heard this version until you introduced it for really, the show. Never heard because it. Because the only thing I know about Herb Albert is the album cover to this album. And that's what I was, yeah. All right, go ahead. It is one please of Please subscribe for yeah, us.
1: One of the most iconic album covers in... in music history um, basically uh, uh, Dolores Erickson that was the cover model uh, she is seated and she appears to be of course I, I really doubt she was she was probably wearing a bikini but she appears to be naked and just sitting in a, just covered to her, her, her neck if you will in whipped cream yes uh, the name of the song or the name of the album is Whipped Cream and Other Delights um, and Here's the thing. This shouldn't come as a surprise if you know anything about uh, you know, art design. Um, everything that you see in the photo, uh, the whipped cream, all of it except for what's on her fingertips that she's actually putting into her mouth, it's all shaving cream actually. Oh. Because whipped cream...
0: Yeah, do it would melt.
1: Yeah, they tried it and it all melted under the hot lights, number one. Number two, it attracted flies. <laughs> there were flies... That's there. not what
0: you want on that album no, cover. No, flies buzzing it's around. probably
1: the least sexy thing in the world. Uh, but, uh, so yeah, it's actually uh, shaving cream except the, for the whipped cream on her fingers. Um, the song itself, there is a solo drum beat that's heard before the rest of the band kicks in. Uh, it was put there... Simply as a guide for timing, uh, it was. In, it was going to be removed upon completion of the tune, but Her- Albert decided he he liked it there. Uh, Herb Albert and Tijuana Brass. Here's the thing: my parents, I don't know which one of them. I my dad's still alive and kicking. I should probably ask. I don't know if it was he or mom, that was a fan of Herb Albert. Uh, growing up, they had these albums in their collection, and I just, I just, whenever I would go to put on music, I would skip right by them. I, I was never remotely interested in what. They had a few years ago. I, I when we moved my dad uh, out of out of his house, it um, sold the house. I, I basically inherited his music collection, and for the first time, I took these Herb Albert albums out and I actually put them on the turntable and I listened to them. and I was surprised. I actually knew a lot of these songs, and I didn't realize I—I I, I couldn't tell you where I heard them before. I mean, I'm sure they're pervasive in pop culture. They've probably been used in commercials, movies, the like. Like this one, "Taste of Honey." I knew it. I had heard it. I couldn't tell you where I had heard it, but it, this was my first time spinning it on the turntable. It was not the first time that I had ever heard the song uh Spanish Flea which is not the same album but that's another good example these songs uh, apparently are just they're so ingrained in pop culture that I knew the Tijuana Brass without knowing the Tijuana Brass if that makes any sense sure so yeah I, I I don't know when it came time to to make my choices I almost left this one off because it's not it was it was recorded the album came out in 65 so technically not a Gen X choice But I'll be honest, most of what I was looking at in the number 11 spot were not Gen X choices. For whatever reason, there's just a whole list of songs from the 50s and 60s that I really wanted to include. And this one just went out because it's unlike anything else that we are bringing to the table. Um, The other thing I'll say about Tijuana Brass is, as someone, I I remember watching like The Dating Game, old reruns of The Dating Game, you know, or... or, uh, the, the New Leewood game, any any of these old you know television uh, game shows, I swear Herb Albert must have done theme songs to these game shows because while this is not, it's never been used for that purpose. I listen to Herb Albert now, and all I hear are those. It, it's so sixties,
0: right? Right. You know,
1: it is so sixties, and it it just it's in that same vein, um, but. Yeah, I essentially this this track. I would not be surprised if a number of you have heard it. Um, and there are so many versions. You're right. The Beatles covered it. Um, there originally were not lyrics. The lyrics were added so Tony Bennett could sing it. Oh, interesting. Uh, Albert's version, of course, is instrumental. Or else it would not be here. Uh, in 1966, Albert did receive Grammys for his version of this song in three different categories: best instrumental arrangement, best instrumental performance (non-jazz), and for record of the year. Uh, so Taste of Honey, I mean, it, it won a number of awards. Um, and Lionel, let's see, the list. Lionel Hampton, Bobby Darin, The Hollies, Peggy Lee, The Temptations, The Ventures, uh, The Beatles. Yeah, it, everyone has covered this. Um, but Wood Cream and Other Delights. Uh, certainly, even if you're not interested in the music, uh, check out the album cover If you if you've not seen it. It is one of the most recognizable covers ever printed, and... It was re-released in two thousand and five, remastered uh, with sound, and extensive liner notes from from Albert himself. It's, it is just, it's a fun number. It's a quirky one. It, it's, uh, to me, I mean, I imagine I don't know how we're going to sequence this yet, but coming out of Soul Bossa Nova, the two songs I think would play really well with each other. It's that same, same feel, if you will. So, there's there's my number eleven choice.
0: All right, that brings me to my last one. All right. So this one is a song which, you know, when we get to the bottom of our list, like you said, with Herb Albert, sometimes we choose something that, you know, maybe it's a little off track. this is a song that a lot of people may not know because it was actually a B-side that never became a single, an A-side single. And that's Oscillate Wildly by The Smiths. And if you were an alternative fan in the 80s, you'll know right away. If not, uh, listen to this because I I love this song. 1987 it actually appeared on a number of different uh, 12-inch singles the Smiths were very much like uh, Simon and Garfunkel in that they would release singles and then when they had enough singles they would put them together in, a, in an album not always because I mean, some like Queen is Dead was was an album but there were a lot of singles that were released um, in the early 80s, and then they would collect them. The British version uh, of the singles that appear on the American... Well, the British version was called The World Won't Listen. The American counterpart was Louder Than Bombs, so that's the one that we knew, and of course, we had the import for World Won't Listen also, but Louder Than Bombs is the American version. And so even though it was technically a B-side on some of these these singles, it, it appeared on this, this album. So I consider Louder Than Bombs just a, another... Queen or uh, Smith's album. Um, it also made their their second volume of their best of release. So I'm not the only one that likes the song. They considered it um, good enough to put on their best of. Um, it's an instrumental song. It's just a it's just a fun, quirky. It's it's Johnny Marr and, and and Andy Rourke and and they're just playing through. There's a rumor, of course, Morrissey. You know, Morrissey is the ego of the band, and because it's instrumental, Morrissey does not appear on this track. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so, how do you have a Smith song a Smith song without Morrissey? There's a rumor that Morrissey like was upstairs pouting the entire time they were recording this. <laughs> Could totally see that. Which I can totally see. He denies yeah. this uh, in an interview in the late eight, in 90s. He he denied this saying that he approved of the track. And the only thing I can think of that may be true uh, that would support that notion is the fact that um, Morrissey um, is a huge fan of Oscar Wilde. And so I don't know for sure, but my guess is the Oscillate wildly uh, is comes from Oscar Wilde's name.
1: Oh, it ha- well, yeah. And,
0: and, and so maybe they let Morrissey pick the name of the song. If he couldn't <laughs> sing, he could he could pick the name. I don't know that for sure. Um, the song was never performed live, although it did appear in, in some sound checks before live performances, at least one time. And uh, yeah, I just I wanted to end with this song. It's just it's one that I still listen to um, when I'm listening to The Smiths. I'm excited when it comes on. It's just a great instrumental track.
1: No, yeah. no, it's it's. I hadn't heard it in a long time. Um, it's it's a good way. It's it's actually a good closer. Yeah. I, I don't know that we'll use it that way, but it's it uh, it just I don't know. It's just a, it's laid back, but it has, it has just this very infectious groove to it. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, that takes me to my number 12, which may be the oldest song that we brought with us. I don't know. I don't, I'd have to go back and look at everything that we've all 24 cuts, but um, this is certainly the oldest one that I brought. It is from 1957. And it was a number one hit. Again, a lot of these were number one hits. Yeah, it's um,
0: another movie song. You have two on here. Well, and
1: well, I was going to say this one. I certainly was not thinking movies because this is just this is a song you know, right? I mean, it, it's just it is just a, a pop culture staple, especially at the bars for good reason. The song is Tequila, and it's by the Champs. without explanation that it is very much Gen X. Okay, I do get away with this because every Pee Wee Herman fan remembers him dancing to this song. Tequila! Yeah. Um, It was originally released as a B-side of an aptly named song by the champs called Train to Nowhere, (laughs) which was what happened to the particular track on side A. It went nowhere because the disc jockeys flipped the single and Tequila instead soared to number one and became the big hit. Um, Danny Flores, who was the sax player for the Champs, he wrote the song. Uh, Flores had the melody kicking around for a while, and he would play it as an interlude during the group's club shows. He was a tequila drinker. So when the band decided to record his melody as the B-side, he named it Tequila and added the spoken title, which he voiced. The actual tequila that's thrown in there, uh, that part of the song was really just improvised. Because the song was incomplete, he hadn't finished the song. It was it was incomplete, and they needed a B-side. Now, essentially, um, when they were recording "Train to Nowhere," some of the musicians had already left the studio when it was brought up that nothing had been recorded for the B-side. So the remaining musicians rounded up, uh, and they, they agreed to to use tequila. And you know that part of the song, yeah, it was just a silly attempt to cover up the holes that that existed in this song that was never meant to be recorded. Um, But the group, I guess, released it. This list cracks me up, and I've never heard any of these songs. I'm going to have to look them up for myself. The group apparently released more tequila-related songs following the success of this. They recorded a song titled Too Much Tequila. They recorded a song called Tequila Twist. They recorded a song called Tequila with Lime. They recorded a song called Passed Out from tequila.
0: <laughs> okay, it's it's one thing to jump on exactly, something that's working, yeah. but that's ridiculous. And I'm
1: looking at this, I'm like I I'm going to have to look up some of these. We're not going to put them on the mention. Well, maybe we'll put one on if it's any good. I don't know. But, you know, after the Champs, it was a long time before another tequila song reached the uh the Hot 100. You know, what the next one was? Tequila Sunrise by you, the Eagles. You got it. 1973. It only hit number 64, Tequila Sunrise. Really? Yeah. Hit number 64, never hit top 40.
0: That's one of the few Eagle songs I'm not sick of.
1: Yeah, well, apparently that's why. It was never a a major hit, which surprised me. I I thought it was. Um, But yeah, the beverage fell out of favor musically in the 80s, but it was revived in the 90s by Terror Vision. They had a song called Tequila. Sammy Hagar, he had Moss Tequila. Uh, It later became a hot topic in country songs with tracks like Tequila Makes Your Clothes Fall Off and you and tequila.
0: And that's the most country sounding title I think I've ever heard.
1: What tequila makes her clothes well, for us. It's a fun song. Um, I'm not a big country fan, but I, I do enjoy that one. But yeah, the, the, the song was featured in the 85 movie Pee-wee's big adventure. And it was used in a scene where Pee-wee Herman wins over the crowd in a biker bar by doing a dance to the song on the bar top. And, uh, the movie was the first feature film, very first one directed by Tim Burton. And it was also Danny Elfman who wrote the score. Um, Tequila. Had to include it. So that is my number 12.
0: So we have now discussed 24 instrumental songs to be put onto the mixtape. And now Alan and I need to deliberate and figure out what order these should go in. Agreed. So we will be right back after this.
1: All right. We are back and we have a sequence. So we are going to run through for you the instrumentals mixtape. And it's actually... It's pretty cool, actually, uh, the way that these songs work uh, in and within, between one another. We begin with Eruption by Van Halen because it's just the perfect... Why not? It's the perfect <laughs> lead-in, yeah. Uh, that leads into Moby Dick by Led Zeppelin, immediately followed by Frankenstein by Edgar Winner. And I tell you what, you play these two songs back-to-back and it's it's you don't even know that one song is finished and wow, the next yeah, is begun. Yeah. They are... It's like one continued song between Zeppelin and Edgar Winner. Miserloo comes next, followed by the Miami Vice theme. Then Axo F, followed by Rocket, followed by Pick Up the Pieces by Average White Band, the Star Wars theme Cantina Band by Miko, Speed of Life by David Bowie and Oscar, Oscillate Wildly by the Smiths. Is it oscillate or oscillate? I think it's
0: oscillate, like an oscillating fan.
1: Silent C. I believe so. Oscillate. So, yeah, mispronounced
0: that. Not Silent C, but a soft C. Right.
1: So, yeah, yeah, mispronounced that one. Oscillate Wildly by the Smiths. And side A ends our 12th track with love theme from St. Elmo's Fire. Side B, we begin with Maggot Brain. That goes into The Call of Cthulhu, followed by Little Wing. Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs. A Taste of Honey by Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. Soul Bossa Nova by Quincy Jones. And to Cantaloupe by Us Three. Then Tequila by the Champs. Followed by Popcorn by Hot Butter. Feel So Good by Chuck Manjone. Sure. Yep, we'll, sure. We'll go, with yep, it. we'll go with it. We're still too lazy to look it up. Dueling Banjos by Eric Weisberg and Steve Mandel. And we end our mixtape with Jessica by the Almond Brothers Band. Nice. It uh, It's it's an eclectic mix and it works it's actually it, it this is going to be a wonderful background uh soundtrack if you're ever just looking to put some music on in the background i know i will it, it's fantastic
0: now we normally we, we choose a title based on a, a title of a song or a lyric from a song or a song that's related but that we didn't choose this will be a little more difficult but i do have a suggestion what's that more than words
1: I like that.
0: Remember that song from oh, Extreme? Yeah, Extreme, yeah, 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 And we talked about how these songs um, are so great they don't need words. That is good, It's Dave. just a thought.
1: Have you been sitting on that for like a week or so? Yeah, kind of. Okay. <laughs> I lo- I lo- no, I love it. I- it's great. Yeah, let's do it. More Than Words by Extreme. Um, oh, it's fantastic. Um, yeah, and there's so many more. I'm, I'm going to throw on just a few of the ones that I really enjoy that we didn't include on the mentioned songs list. I don't know if you have others that you'd like to include as well but um
0: i think i mentioned all the ones that i would have chosen so
1: yeah i um, am now it's it feels good i i'm such a lyrics guy that just playing around with the instrumentals like i said from the beginning it's it was very different for me but it also is a reminder of how much i just love good music you know and it's something that i forget about sometimes when i get so heavy into the poetry of of the songs that we we select so it was a nice change
0: Okay, well, we have some more stuff coming up for you. Uh, we're um, we're going to skip a week. This season, we decided we would do part one, part two, or side A, side B, and then skip a week. Um, so we will not be back next Sunday. But the following Sunday, we will be
1: back with Crazy. Yes. And these uh, are all songs literally very literally about going mad um, so no
0: nope, no Patsy Cline no
1: Patsy Cline which kind of hurts because I would love to I love that song by Patsy Cline uh, but, but yeah we're not talking crazy in love so you can forget your Britney Spears and your fine young cannibals and your Sammy Hagar's. We, we, this these are songs about being crazy
0: take me away uh,
1: hee hee to the funny farm. Among
0: others, yes. What was it, Napoleon? The 14th. 14th. Yeah, Napoleon 14. <laughs> I almost said Napoleon Dynamite, but that's not right. <laughs> no, not
1: Napoleon Speaking Dynamite.
0: Speaking of that, um, I, a few weeks ago, I went down to the Canton Palace Theater and saw a screening of Napoleon Dynamite, and John Hedder, and I, I forget the actor's name that played Pedro, um, came out for a and a for an hour and a half after the film.
1: At the palace? At the palace
0: was it how much did those tickets cost oh, it was, I don't know like 10 bucks or something like really that. yeah yeah it was fun,
1: it I, mean, was cool. fun. I, I hate that movie which you know that's why uh, I didn't ask you to come yeah but it would have been fun for the q and A. I am a John Heder fan I just I, I can't stand this particular film um, oh very cool um, yeah we have crazy coming up um, and then we have a very special um two-part episode following crazy it's going to be a friendly mixtape if you will songs about friendship and our friend uh jason zabos from um who who will save generation x the the trivia game show that dave and i uh were lucky enough to participate in uh he is actually going to be a, a guest co-host
0: with we've us. never had a guest this will be new
1: yeah it's gonna be you know i've thought about from time to time bringing someone in um so I'm excited to, I'm excited to to see how that will work and if it if it fleshes out uh the way that I imagine but it'd be fun sometime not every week or not every episode but it would be fun from time to time to bring in a third person just to get a different perspective maybe yeah. Yeah. um so yeah looking forward to to how that works um but yeah that's that's, that's all I got
0: That's all I have too so That's all for this week. Hot
1: funk, cool punk, even if it's all junk. Another mix of memories awaits in two weeks. But for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject. And we will see you on the flip side.